Take your Bible and find John 21 again. We're going to reference that passage this morning. There's notes in your bulletin where you can track along with the message this morning. We're in the first half of John 21, and John 21 is the last chapter in the Gospel of John. And so we've come almost all the way to the end. Next Sunday will be our last Sunday in John's Gospel. And after that, in the month of May, we're going to begin a series through the spring and the summer into the fall through the book of Jeremiah. Jeremiah is known as the weeping prophet. And the book of Jeremiah is a very, very different book than the Gospel of John. Uh, There's a consistency to the Bible, whatever you're reading, wherever you're reading in the scriptures, but Jeremiah is a very different book, and so I'm excited to study through the book of Jeremiah over the summer months. This morning, we're here at the end of John, and I just want to start with the obvious big picture of what we read a moment ago. Jesus appeared to Peter, Thomas, Nathaniel, James, and John, the sons of Zebedee, and two other disciples who are not named at the Sea of Tiberias which is also known in Jesus' day as the Sea of Galilee. And you have maps in the back of your Bible. I put a, just a black and white map up on the screen. You can see down in the bottom in Judea, there's Jerusalem and Bethlehem and Jericho right to the west of the Dead Sea. The Sea of Galilee is up north. So to get to the Sea of Galilee, you'd have to leave the territory of Judea. You'd have to cross through Samaria. Then you'd be up in the territory of Galilee. And this is Jesus' home area. This is his neck of the woods. This is where he grew up. You can see over to the west of the Sea of Galilee, the city of Nazareth, where Jesus grew up. This was sort of viewed as a a rural area, maybe a bit of a, a redneck area or a backwoods area. So we ought to be able to relate to the way that people thought about Galilee and Nazareth and all of that stuff. Jesus was crucified outside of Jerusalem, down south. And most of his initial post-resurrection appearances were in and around the city of Jerusalem. But at some point, he told the disciples to wait for him in Galilee. And so they had gone back up north, and that's where our story takes place. And the context of our story involves fishing. And I want to say something that many of you have probably heard a pastor, a preacher, a Sunday school teacher say the exact opposite. But this is my take. John gives no indication that Peter and the other disciples were abandoning their calling or going back to an old way of life. You probably at some point, if you've been around church, heard a pastor preach a sermon to that effect, that when these guys went out on the lake, it was almost like they were giving up on Jesus and they were going back to some old way of life. Now, I'll be honest with you. At the last night of youth camp, that's a great sermon. Don't go back. You're going home, but don't go back. Or the last night of a revival. That's a great message to say, hey, revival's almost over. Don't turn back. Like that really, sometimes guys say, that'll really preach. The problem is there's no indication of that in the text. What we know is that Jesus had been raised from the dead. He told the disciples to wait for him, to meet him in Galilee. They had gone back up north. They were waiting We know that a third of the disciples were professional fishermen. Peter, Andrew, James, and John all made their living fishing. We know that they had left those businesses. They had left that profession behind to follow Jesus for a time. But in this story, all John says is they go out fishing. He doesn't say anything directly that would criticize them for this decision. Personally, I think fishing is as boring as watching paint dry. Some of you agree, some of you disagree. But there's nothing 
sinful about watching paint dry. And there's certainly nothing sinful about these guys saying, look, we're waiting for Jesus. Let's go fishing while we wait. And so they go out in their fishing. One more word of caution. Please be careful with details in general and this detail specifically, 153 large fish. Just be careful when you read a detail like that in the Bible. There are all sorts of crazy, crazy theories that have been posited throughout church history about that number 153. Let me share with you just a few of them. There was a man named Cyril. Cyril said 153. The 100 represents Gentiles. The 50 represents the remnant of the Jews who will believe in Jesus. And the three represents the Trinity. And if you add all those up, you get 153. And you say, Cyril, why not Jews 50, Gentiles 100? Like, why? There's no rhyme or reason. It's just his take on the 153. Here's an even better one. This is Augustine. Augustine says, follow this, because this takes a little bit. Ten is for the Ten Commandments. Seven is the perfect number in the Bible. It's, it's a number that represents, he says, the fullness of God's grace. If you add 10 plus 7, you get 17. Then if you take every single number, 1 to 17, and you add all those numbers up, I checked it this week because some of you are already wondering if it really does. If you add all those numbers up, 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, all the way to 17, it equals 153. And so he says that's 153 fish. It's a reminder of the Ten Commandments that convict us and the grace of God that saves us, 153. That's obvious, right? It's easy to come up with. Here's another one. There's a guy named Jerome, another pretty smart guy from church history. He quotes some scientist who was alive in the fourth century. This guy had apparently done a lot of fish studying. And this fish expert in the fourth century said, we all know there are only 153 species of fish. That's it. And Jerome picks up on that and he says, well, what a coincidence. They probably had one of every kind. And it's a picture of all the fullness of the church that's going to be brought into God's kingdom. Now, I didn't look this up or research it this week, but I'm guessing we've at least discovered 154 species of fish over the last 1,500 years. Maybe we haven't. Maybe we're still stuck on 153, and that's it. Here's what I'm saying to you. You read this detail, 153, you can come up with all sorts of crazy stuff. You can do math problems and algebra problems, and you can quote this expert or that expert. I think that what John means when he says we caught 153 fish is we caught 153 fish. Have you ever known somebody that loved to fish? Have you ever heard their fish stories? Does it surprise you at all that a professional fisherman like John, after decades and decades and decades, looking back on this moment would say, I still remember how many fish we caught. 153, not little ones, big ones. And you might have thought the net would have torn. Oh, no, no, no. Like, this is a fishing story. That's what it is. It has all the hallmarks of a classic, classic fishing story. There was 153 fish. Put all the speculation aside. Here's the big idea of this passage, the theme that runs all the way through this story. Christians are dependent people. If you are a Christian... By definition, you are a dependent person. 
There's places in the Bible where truth cuts against the grain of our secular, modern, American culture. This is one of those places. Americans like to pride themselves on their independence. Texans like to pride ourselves on our independence. People who live in West Texas like to pride ourselves that we are independent people. And yet when you read through the Gospels and you think about what it means to be a follower of Jesus Christ, part of what it means is acknowledging that you are a dependent person. You are a needy person. That should create a little bit of attention in all of us. When we live in a place and a time and a culture that values independence, that the Bible says you've got to recognize just how dependent you are. Over the last couple of weeks, I found a a new podcast I like. It's called The Rest is History. And it's a couple of Englishmen talking about history. They talk about events and they talk about places and they talk about people and they talk about important things from history. Uh, I listened to one this week. They talked about the divide in England between the North and the South and the cultural differences. I had no idea what they were talking about, but it was really, really interesting. They had another episode this week I listened to. It was about the Wild West. It's kind of interesting to listen to a couple of Brits talk about the Wild West in the United States of America. And they talked about things like Buffalo Bill's Wild West show, and they talked about the gunslingers and the cowboys and all the sort of stuff that you love and you watch in a good Western movie. And some of the things they said about the Wild West I didn't really agree with, not that I'm some sort of historical expert, some of the things they said about the Wild West, I thought, you know, I've never thought about. Never thought about it that way. That was insightful. One of the things they talked about throughout the episode on the Wild West was that to survive in the Wild West, you had to be independent. Right? Some of the character traits, some of the virtues that you had to possess to make it on the frontier in the Wild West, you had to be tough, you had to be self-reliant, You had to be independent. You had to be a go-getter. You had to be a problem solver. All of these things just had to be a self-reliant person to make it in the Wild West. Essentially, I know this is a bit of an anachronism, but you had to live the old Hank Williams Jr. songs. Not every day you get to quote Hank Williams Jr. in a sermon. Some of you know this song. Jake maybe could sing it for us afterwards. I don't know. But he says, hey, I live back in the woods, the woman, the kids, the dogs, and me. I got a shotgun, a rifle, and a four-wheel drive. A country boy can survive. You got to be independent. You got to be tough. That's the point of the song. I can plow a field all day long. I can catch catfish from dusk till dawn. We make our own whiskey and our own smoke too. There ain't too many things these old boys can't do. The whole song is about being independent. It's about being tough. It's about being self-reliant. Right? It captures the virtues of the Wild West. And in a lot of senses, it captures the virtue of American independence. And it certainly captures the virtue of, of Texans being tough and independent and self-reliant. And yet we come to this passage, and it fits with the rest of the New Testament. It fits with the rest of the Bible. It's that if you're a follower of the Lord, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you've got to acknowledge your dependency before him. And so I want you to see in this passage, how does this third post-resurrection appearance of Jesus highlight our dependency? 
Number one, Jesus revealed himself to the disciples. He revealed himself to them. Look at verse 1, John 21. After this, Jesus revealed himself again to the disciples by the Sea of Tiberias. And notice the bookend at the end of the story, verse 14. This was now the third time that Jesus was revealed to the disciples after he was raised from the dead. You and I understand that the disciples were not playing a cosmic game of hide and seek where Jesus was hiding and they were trying to find him. And then every now and then for a a period of a couple of weeks, they would stumble across him. This wasn't a first century version of Pokemon Go where the disciples were walking around with their little cell phones, geocaching, trying to find Jesus' GPS coordinates. Where is he there? They're not looking for him. He is revealing himself to them. He's in control of when he reveals himself to them and how he reveals himself to them. And in some of these stories, it's very abrupt. When he's done talking to them, he's gone. They probably wanted him to hang around a little bit longer, but he was done in that moment in that episode. He's revealing himself to the disciples. It reminds us of a very important truth that's true for all of us as human beings. It's that we're dependent on God for revelation. He speaks and we listen. He reveals himself and then we see him and know him. It's not us that go looking for him. It's not us that finds him. He is a God who reveals himself to sinners. And he controls sovereignly how he does it, and when he does it. The Lord God did not reveal himself to every nomadic descendant of Noah. He revealed himself to Abraham. Not all of Noah's descendants, but to Abraham. If you fast forward in the biblical story, there was a period after the prophet Malachi, before the preaching of John the Baptist, period of about 400 years. In that 400-year period, there were no prophets. The people of God wrote books during that time. They're not Bible books, but they wrote books. They desperately wanted to hear from the Lord during those years. They knew that there were no prophets, and they were longing for a word from the Lord. They wanted a word from the Lord, but there was 400 years of silence. God controls when he reveals himself and how he reveals himself. You think about Saul, a Pharisee persecuting Christians on his way to round up Christians and throw them into prison. And the Lord Jesus reveals himself to Saul on the road to Damascus. The Lord Jesus was in control of that entire episode. He revealed himself to Saul. The Bible is God's written self-revelation to us. And you may read the Bible and you may say, I don't really like how God revealed himself in the book of Leviticus. Tough. You may say, you know, I've been reading Paul's letter to the church in Rome and there's some stuff in there I don't really like. There's some things about God that I'm not really comfortable with. Make me very uncomfortable. Sorry. God decides how and when to reveal himself, and we are completely dependent on him for revelation. Unless he reveals himself to us, we don't know him. And there's something deeply problematic when the creature 
begins to question and criticize the way that the creator has chosen to reveal himself to us. So we just need to stop and we need to acknowledge we're dependent on God for revelation. You may find yourself thinking as you read through the Bible, I really wish God would have put some pictures in here somewhere. You may find yourself thinking as you read through the Bible, couldn't God just open a YouTube account? Couldn't he just post some videos? I don't like reading. I struggle with reading. It's hard. You may have a lot of objections. I'm sure the disciples in this moment, they're treasuring every second they had with Jesus. But then when he was gone, when he left them, when he disappeared, I'm sure they wanted another hour, another minute, another five minutes. God controls how and when he reveals himself to his people, and we're dependent on him for revelation. Secondly, Jesus helped the disciples catch fish. He helped them catch fish. I don't know how closely you have read through Matthew, Mark, and Luke, but I'm going to give you a, a quote that summarizes something really important. This is from a scholar named Andreas Kostenberger. He says, remarkably, the disciples never catch any fish in any of the Gospels without Jesus' help. Have you ever noticed that? Never catch a single fish in any of the Gospels without Jesus' help. Now, I already told you that a third of these guys, Peter, Andrew, James, and John, were professional fishermen. They did this for a living. Presumably, they at some point in their life caught a fish without Jesus, right? This was their job. So we just want to give them the benefit of the doubt and say, the Bible doesn't say they never caught fish without Jesus' help. It just doesn't tell us any stories except for the ones where they catch fish with Jesus' help. So presumably they caught some fish without Jesus being around. My question is, what kind of fisherman, think about the fisherman you know, what kind of fisherman ends up telling and approving a story where he or she can't catch any fish without the help of a carpenter from Nazareth? What kind of person tells that kind of story? They did this for a living, and yet in the story, they can't do it without Jesus' help. The only kind of person that tells that kind of story is someone who is, has realized, has acknowledged, the light bulb has gone off, that we are dependent on God for our livelihoods. We are completely dependent on him for our livelihoods. I know that some of you worked very hard in college, studying, getting degrees, I know that some of you worked very hard not going to college, but working. We live in West Texas, and not everyone goes to college, and some people just go to the oil field, and they work really hard, and they work long hours, and they do manual labor, and they put in the work. And I know a lot of you have made sacrifices for your careers, and we could all tell stories of how we have worked to make a livelihood. Yet at the end of the day, when it's all said and done, and we've done all of these things. We've got to acknowledge what James says in the first chapter of James, that everything we have is a gift from God. Every good thing in our lives is a gift that comes down from the Father. That includes our jobs and our vocations and our careers and our degrees and our livelihood. Jesus helped these men catch fish. Look at verse 10. Jesus is not ugly about any of this either. He's kind. He's gracious. He says to them, 
bring some of the fish that you have just caught. He doesn't say, hey, would you bring some of the fish that I I got? Hey, would you bring some of the fish that I told you where they were? Hey, would you bring some of the fish that you didn't catch all night, but you caught as soon as I? He just says, hey, you caught some fish, bring them. He is the one who enables us to work, to study, to learn, to make a livelihood, but we are completely dependent on him. Now, here's just a short rabbit trail, but I think it's important. It's a related note. Jesus also helped the disciples catch people. Yes, he helped them catch fish, but he also helped them catch people. You cannot read the story in John 21 without thinking of a similar story in Luke chapter 5. The stories are so similar that some skeptical Bible scholars actually think that John and Luke are telling the same story just with a different twist at the end. It's not the same story. It's two different stories, but they are very similar. In Luke 5, Jesus is just starting his public ministry. There's a crowd of people who have gathered to listen to him preach, and he says to Peter, Peter, let me get in your boat, push off from the shore just a little bit so I can create some distance between me and this crowd, and he teaches a crowd of people on the shore from Peter's boat. When he's done teaching, he looks at Peter and he says, Peter, put your nets down. And Peter, the professional, says what he always says in the Gospels when he's around Jesus. We fished all night and we didn't catch anything. Don't you think, Jesus, that we know you're supposed to fish at night? That's the best time to fish on the Sea of Galilee. Jesus, don't you think that me and Andrew and James and John know what we're doing? We know when and where to put our nets down. Jesus, we have done it all night long and caught nothing. But I'll indulge you, Jesus. This is what happens next, Luke chapter 5. They put the nets down, and when they had done this, they enclosed a large number of fish, and their nets were breaking. But when Simon Peter saw it, he fell down at Jesus' knees, saying, Depart from me, for I am a sinful man, O Lord. And Jesus said to Simon, Pay attention, don't be afraid. From now on, you will be catching men. You'll be catching people. And Jesus wanted Peter and Andrew and James and John and the rest of the 12 and the church and you and me to remember that when it comes to our livelihoods, we're dependent on him. And when it comes to evangelism, we are completely dependent on Jesus. We are dependent on God and our evangelism. Our staff reads together and studies together. We've been reading a book by a guy named John Stott. Uh, He's a dead guy. He lived decades ago. Uh, This book, Basic Christianity, is just a great summary of the Christian faith, and it's just a great reminder of basic things. And so we've been reading it, and we talked about this week, so we're talking about the gospel. We talked about, and learning from Stott, that we are dependent on God when it comes to evangelism. And if you'll let me shift the metaphor briefly from fishing to farming, Stott makes the point that Paul makes in the book of 1 Corinthians. This is the passage that I draw your attention to. What is Apollos? What is Paul? They are servants through whom you believed as the Lord assigned to each. I planted, Apollos watered, but God gave the growth. Neither he who plants nor he who waters is anything but only God who gives the growth. 
You know, all these people in Corinth clamoring and arguing and fighting about their favorite teacher, their favorite preacher, their favorite minister, whatever. And Paul just cuts through all the mess and says, look, none of us are significant at all. One of us plants, one of us waters. None of us gave the growth. God's the one that gives the growth. The reason that you've accepted the gospel and you're growing the gospel is not because of Paul or Apollos or Peter or anybody else. It's because God is at work in you. Jesus is teaching the disciples that very same truth, not with a farming metaphor, but with a fishing metaphor. Peter, put down the nets. We haven't caught anything. Peter, put down the nets. There's this great catch. You read these two stories and you realize on the front end of his ministry, he's trying to teach the disciples, you are dependent on me for the work of evangelism. And here at the end of his ministry, he's reminding the disciples, what I'm about to send you out to do, you can't do on your own. You are completely dependent on me in evangelism. One last truth, our dependency on God. Jesus served his disciples. I'd just like you to look at verse 9 to 13 again. It says, when they got out on the land, they saw a charcoal fire in place with fish laid out on it and bread. And Jesus said to them, bring some of the fish that you have just caught. So Simon Peter went aboard and hauled the net ashore full of large fish, 153 of them. And although there were so many, the net was not torn. Jesus said to them, come and have breakfast. Now, none of the disciples dared ask him, who are you? They knew it was the Lord. Jesus came, he took the bread, and he gave it to them, and so with the fish. One of the most shocking, surprising things that you read in the Gospels is that Jesus was constantly, continually serving his disciples. In many respects, it was completely upside down from the teacher-student model that persisted in their day and in their time. They thought the student was there to serve the master, but Jesus kept serving them right down to the night when he was betrayed. They sit down to celebrate the Passover, and Jesus lays aside his garment, and he wraps a towel around his waist, and he cleans the muck and the junk and the stink off of their feet. They were shocked. To a person, they said, this is not the way that it ought to be, you serving us. Don't be any less surprised when you read this story and Jesus is fixing breakfast for his friends. We tend to just get used to these stories. We don't even think about what's happening in them. But I just want you to think about what's going on here at the end of the Gospel of John. Jesus has lived a life of perfect righteousness. He's died on the cross is a substitutionary sacrifice for sinners. He has been raised from the dead three days later. He is alive, not just in a resuscitated body, but a resurrected, glorified body. This is the eternal word of God in human flesh. It's the Christ, it's the Messiah, It's the son of God, it's the son of David, it's the son of man from Daniel chapter seven. Not only does he wash feet, but even after the resurrection, he gathers sticks for a fire. And he makes toast for his disciples. You like it lightly toasted or dark? 
And he takes fish and he cleans fish. You say, well, where did he get the fish? I don't know where he got the fish. I don't know where he got the bread. I don't know where he got the charcoal for the fire, all the rest. But he is stooping to be a short order cook for his disciples. It's the glorified, resurrected, exalted son of God cooking breakfast. It's a reminder of what we read in the Gospel of Mark, chapter 10, verse 45. The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Listen, we are completely dependent on God for salvation. Completely dependent on God for our salvation. Thankfully, we serve a Savior who serves his people. We look to the Lord Jesus Christ who came to serve his disciples. It's an awkward thing to think about Jesus washing feet. And it's an awkward thing to think about Jesus fixing breakfast for these men by the side of a lake. It's far more awkward, doesn't even capture it, awe-inspiring to think about the Son of God himself laying down his life for us at the cross. He did not come that we would serve him, but he came to serve us, to give his life as a ransom. I hope and I pray that you have come to the point in your life where you have acknowledged your dependency before God, where you've recognized it, you've come to grips with it, you've come to see it as it really is and as the Bible describes it. Here's the reality. In the end, we all stand before God and we'll all acknowledge several things. We'll all acknowledge in the end that the Lord God is holy, holy, holy. Whatever our low, pitiful, human, earthly thoughts about him are now, they will not be in the end. We will see him as he is and we will recognize his holiness. We will also see ourselves for who we truly are. When you see the holiness of God in all of its glory, your sin will be more apparent than you've ever imagined. You will realize the depths of your depravity. You will recognize the horror of your brokenness, the wickedness of your rebellion. And you will realize, maybe for the very first time, but hopefully not, that when it comes to life, you are completely dependent on God's grace and his mercy. You have no, nothing independent within yourself to offer him. There is nothing you can do, spiritually pulling yourselves up by your own bootstraps to fix the mess that you've gotten yourself in. And I pray that you recognize that now, that you throw yourself, you cast yourself on the mercy of God. And you do what John has told you to do all the way through this gospel. You believe. You believe. You believe that God sent Jesus, his son, so that you could have life. You believe that Jesus came to serve you. And in serving you, he did for you what you never would have been able to do for yourself. 